0: Hey everyone, Chat Cemetery is back, as is Dan Pullen. Today we are talking about the Hearts in Atlantis movie from 2001, which ironically is the same year that Anthony Hopkins was in Hannibal, and these are two very, very different movies if you ask me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) How you doing? Yeah, it's, it's good to be back.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you signed up for both of these because it gives us the chance to go through and be like, okay... What was like the story, and what was different? And in this instance, you know, Hearts in Atlantis, we talked about how the five stories were interconnected, but this movie really only touches on two of the stories, and it doesn't even touch on the title story of Hearts in Atlantis. <laughs> yeah,
1: that, that was kind of funny. Yeah. Well, it it focused on our favorite parts of the book, which were the the kind of coming of age story around the kids. But I thought it I thought it was interesting you know we, we talked a little bit about the book being uh, king's like statement about his generation and the struggles they went through and stuff all of that's gone like all you know <laughs> there's there's nothing here this is straight up just a story of kids kind of growing up in a neighborhood and a little episode in their life that's it
0: it really felt like they were trying to get that stand by me feel and replicate everything that happened in the body and that adaptation because those movies tend to play so well. I love watching coming of age movies, even though I have gone far beyond coming of age time.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, of course.
0: It's just one of those genres that really resonates with people for one reason or another whether it's because they can relate or maybe they're a little more like me where I didn't have as much freedom as a kid so I watched things like Stranger Things oh. and I'm like oh man I wish <laughs> I could do that <laughs> yeah
1: yeah um yeah Stranger Things uh, I I watched because that like that was my childhood like those those I look back at those kids I was born in 1977 so like 80s was, you know, prime kid time for me. I was on my bike and, you know, having uh, not adventures that were as good as those kids, but, you know, little adventures. But yeah, you're you're absolutely right with the comparison to um, Stand By Me. It's hard Mm -hmm. not to. You know, it's it's Stephen King. It's coming of age. It's the 60s. Uh, It's kind of like it would be like not comparing Shawshank and The Green Mile, right? Because, you know.
0: Prison movies. (laughs)
1: Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Stephen King does something different. And yeah, you're gonna kind of latch on to that. And I don't know about you. I mean, I, I liked this movie. Definitely. It did not hold up if you compare it to Stand By Me.
0: Right. And I want to quickly run through the cast because you have Anthony Hopkins, obviously, as the big name, but then you have David Morse as... Older Bobby returning after doing The Green Mile. And it's always fun to me to see who returns to Stephen King properties, especially so soon because The Green Mile closed out the 90s as far as Stephen King adaptations go. And then this basically kicks off the 2000s because it's 2001. And the only thing he had that came out in 2000 was The Plant, which is an online story that you can read. It's two giant PDFs. Hmm. And it seems like it's one of those things not everyone knows about, but the big Stephen King fans will know about. And you really just get a sense that they wanted to hit big with this. And maybe it didn't work quite as well. But having Anthony Hopkins at the height of the Hannibal series, you know, that seems like a good bet. And then you have (laughs) a young Anton Yelchin, who unfortunately has since passed away in a freak accident, basically. And just to see his performance as a child, I didn't even know he was a child actor, really. I thought he started getting more roles in his 20s. And I was like, oh, wow, that is him. And he plays Bobby Garfield. So you have these characters who interact so much with each other that you're really hoping the chemistry is perfect with the two of them. And I think that came across Mm. pretty well because it wasn't like Anthony Hopkins felt creepy towards, you know, Anton Yelchin or anything throughout this. And given everything we've been hearing about Hollywood lately, you're kind of like, oh, thank goodness.
1: (laughs) Yeah, really? I definitely think there were elements uh, of the cast that really worked. I thought Anthony Hopkins and Anton uh Yelchin were perfect. I liked uh, Mika Borum Bur- I think so. Borem, Borum. Yeah. As Carol. I thought she, she played really... Well, it's funny. I thought she played Carol really well, but I didn't feel a really great connection between the characters of Bobby and Carol. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought she was great as Carol, but as far as the chemistry of the characters together... And then, geez, I don't even know who who played Sully. He's somewhere down on this list.
0: Will Rothar, I believe.
1: Yeah, and I just I felt his character wasn't developed enough.
0: He didn't seem like the big goof that he was in the yeah. Low Men story, and really, you're banking on. Anthony Hopkins in this, I think, is what the movie really wanted to do. And you have Hope Davis as Liz Garfield, who is good, but we don't see her quite as much, I feel like, as we do in the story, since she spends a good chunk of the movie gone on her business trip. And we get that brief, horrific scene In the hotel room. And they don't even need us to see everything to know exactly what happened. And we see how she looks when she returns. So they leave a lot of that unspoken. But you know that Ted knows what happened because he even brings it up a little And then you also have the fun appearance by Alan Tudyk as the card guy. And it was just so fun to see him because that's kind of the perfect role for him. He's really this funny guy. And he was funny, but he was also sort of this angry guy once the kids started beating him at the game. And, you know, Bobby was just like, I just knew. So you get this Stephen King situation that comes up so often with children is that they have powers. And mm. you get a sense yeah. that Bobby and Ted have this unique connection. And granted, his powers aren't something like Charlie from Firestarter or even Carrie's powers, but you yep. get a sense there's something special about him, kind of like Danny in The Shining. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And I, I, I agree with you, especially on the Alan uh, Tiddick. I thought that was a, a great a great scene and great casting. I mean, Hope Davis for me was, was great. She's always great. I mean, this might've been a, a, a choice, but I thought she was a little softer in this. than in the book, you know what I mean? But I don't think it was bad. I think her character still worked. She was still, you know, kind of, uh, you know, stern and standoffish enough and, and things like that, that you, you got that tension between her and, uh, uh, Bobby, but, it was it, That was one of the characters that was a little bit different.
0: Story-wise, there were quite a few different things, too, because if I'm not mm. mistaken, Carol wasn't dead because her and Bobby meet up and she gives him the glove. So at the beginning of the movie, when you see David Morse as this adult Bobby and he's going to Sully's yeah. funeral, he asks about Carol and the guy is like, oh, you didn't hear She's dead, too. And, you know... Yeah. He's a little more delicate about it than that. <laughs> yeah. But it was one of those things where I was like, oh, they're hitting us with this big change right off the bat. Yeah. And at the end, instead, he meets her daughter instead right. of her. So you kind of still get that. And if I'm not mistaken, the daughter was played by the girl who plays Carol.
1: Yes. Yeah. I Initially, I thought it was going to be like a bait and switch because in the... In the book, she is uh, you know she says she's not Carol. she says she's somebody else and she has this whole different life. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh okay, maybe Carol still shows up. but yeah, there was there was a lot of changes. you know that's that's another one of those elements that I think maybe this movie had too many too many things going for it, okay because it's Stephen King. Mm-hmm. you've got this great cast. you're waiting for another stand by me. And this is written by William Goldman, who, uh, I mean, not only has he done just fantastic movies in general, uh, Butch and Sundance and um, Princess Bride and The Marathon Man, but he also did Misery. So, I right. mean, he's, he's already like hit a home run with, with, uh, with a King adaptation. And I thought some of his changes were, were smart. You know, um, anytime you're you're taking a novel and and adapting it to the screen, you've got to you know change some things around. And so a lot of it, I didn't I didn't mind the way that they kind of bookended the um, the David Moore scenes. That all made sense, and you know some of the other little changes for pacing and stuff. Yeah, of course, but I think. You know, when I say that this movie, I liked it, but it wasn't great. I think it had a lot almost working against it because of the expectations.
0: Right. And I think because they didn't incorporate... other stories a ton you know even that last story about sully's funeral we barely get that it's like we're introduced with that so it's kind of going backwards a little but then it just skips everything in between and one of the other big changes the story made was carol only gets beat up by one boy and i think that kind of writes out these other characters who were a much bigger part in the book and so you're kind Mm -hmm. of expecting you know blind Willie to be a part of this somehow and you're just like oh okay we're not even going to really touch on that character a lot they do briefly but ted comes and basically stops the three boys from beating the two of them up and i was kind of like oh okay so this is going to be different and then you see i think it was henry come back later and beat carol up by himself if i'm not mistaken i'm really bad with names so yeah. i might be wrong on that
1: i know his last name was Doolin, henry Doolin. okay harry Doolin, somebody <laughs> harry Doolin. <laughs> I yeah horrible at names but if you think about the coming of age aspects i think i think the fact that you had to bring the ted part in right and ted being anthony hopkins he's got to be featured right I think that that is one of the things that made the, the, you didn't have enough time and resources to focus on the kids, and their relationship, the them like, you know, bonding was almost more of a montage yeah. than like real screen time together and
0: monopoly um, or dialogue. whatever it was. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, and then too, like you said, the, the other, uh, St. Gabe's boys. Was St. Gabe's? Why would I remember that, but no one's character's name. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you they're just kind of like nameless thugs right. in the background, you know. So I think, I think those characters and those relationships might have suffered a little bit because you, maybe rightly, uh, were focusing much more on Ted and Bobby's relationship.
0: Yeah, and that kind of makes it a little bit of a weirder coming-of-age story because then it's really just Bobby's coming-of-age story and him figuring these things out because it's basically like we got present-day Bobby flashing back to this moment in time as he walks through his old neighborhood, and that is the catalyst for the coming-of-age story. And because it's from his perspective maybe that's why it focuses more on him and Ted, whereas the book almost feels like it's from Bobby's perspective, but still an outsider's perspective as well. Yes. So there's a huge focus on Bobby in that and his relationships with people, but you sort of get this third person sort of behind the page telling you all of this stuff.
1: Yeah, because at times you will you will get things like little snippets from like Carol's perspective mm-hmm. and and some of the other characters. Yes, it is it is mainly Bobby but it is it is not a fir- it's not a first person narrative. So yeah, it was a little different in that regards, but the there was one big change that I really really loved. Okay. And that was the Bronco Nagursky story. So that was the Ted tells this story of watching an aged Bronco Nagurski come back after seven years of retirement to play uh, for for the Chicago Bears again, and you know he puts you know they feed him the ball and he, t- he puts the whole team on his back and he he beats the uh, uh, the Cardinals in this pivotal game. I, I think it was a championship game. Um, and the the important thing about that story is it turns out. Ted and Bobby's father were both, I think, at that game, or at least um, Bobby's father had listened to it. I can't yeah. remember that now, but it was it was an important thing to both of them, and Bobby's father had told Bobby about that game, and now he was making that same connection with Ted. The reason, so that that's nice enough that they yeah. have this this thing to share, but. Later on, when, you know, when Carol is, um, is hurt in the, in the grove there after the attack, he picks her up and carries her the same way that Bronco Nagurski carried his team. And so you have that, that parallel there. I thought that was a really brilliant thing that was not anywhere in the book. So I think that was, that was the only thing that really stood out for me that was a huge change and a huge addition that really worked well.
0: It's one of those things where I recently talked about the girl who loved Tom Gordon, and you see how sports bring people together so much. And because Mm -hmm. King is a big baseball fan, from what I know, he's a pretty big Red Sox fan. It doesn't surprise me that you know he knows at least a little bit about sports, but (laughs) the fact that this came in the movie and not in the book, that's where you're like, oh, okay, someone wanted to make this extra connection between Bobby and Ted. And I think Ted also just has this sort of ability to know things and feel things like Bobby does. So I don't think he was necessarily with Bobby's dad. I think he just sort of knows how Bobby's dad felt either because of how he knows that the dad told Bobby the story or something. But you really get this sense that Ted just knows a bunch of things he shouldn't really know. (laughs)
1: Yeah, and and I was I was because he does tell Bobby that he was at that game, but you you're right. You wonder, you're like, was he really there or is this just psychic Ted?
0: Yeah, you really just don't fully know what Ted's capable mm-hmm. of knowing either because he obviously can be very observant at times, like when Bobby's mom Liz comes back from her quote-unquote business trip. You can visibly see that something happened to her. Maybe the kids won't know exactly what it is, but Ted is smart enough to put two and two together. You know, he's been around for yeah. quite some time. <laughs> he knows what happened in that hotel room. And you're kind of like, okay, is that just because of how she looks? Or is it because he just knows these things?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, It and it's – he. he Well, he also, he did, like you're saying, he did the same thing with um, uh, Doolin. And, Mm -hmm. you know, he kind of pulled him, you know, right up to him and was like, you don't want people to know that when no one's around, you, you know, dress up in your mom's clothes. Um, That he had to, you know, that's definitely like some type of psychic connection. You're not making any guesses there.
0: Yeah, he's not a peeping Tom or anything like that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah,
1: right. So... I definitely think that they were playing um, in those in those areas. They were playing on Ted's um, like psych, psychic perception. His uh, God, what what was the, What was the what's the actual word for it in in the Gunslinger Dark Tower? Um.
0: Oh, I should know this. I host a Stephen King podcast. I should know this.
1: <laughs> I can't remember it. I don't. I don't have it written down in either set of my notes. It's like a reader or a something. Whatever Ted is. A breaker. Breaker. Thank you.
0: <laughs> Thank Google. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, yeah, I definitely think that they were showing off, um, you know, Ted's uh, breaker skills.
0: Yeah. And you get the whole low men situation, too, because you see these guys in suits going around and you see Bobby getting paranoid because he saw, like, a fedora in a car. And then he starts seeing these signs, <laughs> or not signs, but you know, these papers posted all around town, like, as if someone had lost a dog. And then it's like, have you seen Ted again at the end? <laughs> and you really get sort <laughs> yeah. of this tinfoil element <laughs> to some of Stephen King's stories, too, which I really enjoy. And you think yeah. Ted is paranoid, but then you're like, oh, wait, these guys are actually real. So while you kind of get this conspiracy theory side of things, it's also something that is actually happening. It's Again, kind of like Charlie and Firestarter, where they have the shop chasing after her. And I think King does a very nice job of creating these entities that go after these unique people. And it's not necessarily the shop every time, but Mm. he makes it very entertaining.
1: Yeah. You know, going into the movie, one of the things I was maybe kind of concerned about was the portrayal of the low men.
0: Mm-hmm. Because
1: in the book, it goes into a lot more detail when there's the final confrontation, and they are these very strange—I I would say—bordering on cartoonish characters. You know, they—the way Bobby describes it, the the cars like really seem almost alive, pulsating, and and things like that. And I and I worried, uh, you know, once we get there, especially in this like very. Other than the psychic elements, this is a very grounded, re- realistic, young kid coming-of-age movie. If all of a sudden there's these, like, monster cars, you know, with some bad CGI, that w- <laughs> was really going to, you know, take the thing down. But yeah. I-, I liked that change as well. Kind of just made them these shadowy background figures. You never even uh, saw their f- their full faces or had a conversation Uh, in person Bobby talked to one of them on the phone you know so it was all very disconnected and you just kind of knew that they were this uh, some kind of shadow agency
0: yeah and I kind of like that a little better because when he goes a little too weird with things like in the Tommy Knockers which is by far my least favorite thing I've read (laughs) of his so far it was one of those things where I kind of enjoy entities like the shop and like the low men as they are portrayed in this movie a little more than something more cartoonish or alien like mm. and there's a lot to sort of pull apart from just the low men story because if I'm not mistaken, it is the longest story from the yeah. collection, you know, I think it was over 200 pages long, it might be barely be considered a novella (laughs) at that point. But you're left kind of wondering, okay, how would they have portrayed these other stories? Obviously, the title story, Hearts in Atlantis, would have been an easier one because it was just, you know, this kind of college movie and a little bit of that coming of age element still, Mm -hmm. because in college, that's when people really start to figure out who they are before they go into like, true adulthood, so to speak. Yeah. And I think it's just one of those things where I really did enjoy this more than I expected to. Because I was hopeful that they didn't put Anthony Hopkins in a movie and then waste <laughs> him. In it. You know, that would have been I think a true tragedy if this turned out to be something along the lines of sometimes they come back <laughs> or something like that
1: oh okay yep
0: yeah and the director
1: scott hicks he hasn't done a lot of things that i've seen or know that well but he did do shine in 1996 uh with jeffrey rush which was like i th- for me at least that's what i know jeffrey rush as his like breakout role um I might be wrong there, but he, you know, he's nominated for an Oscar and and this, that. And so you're definitely talking about a guy who has some skills, you know, and knows how to make a good story. So at least we, and I I think he did a a great job uh, with, with this. One of the other things I look, I got to tell you this, because in the last podcast, we talked about this, this story is set in Connecticut Mm -hmm. and I'm from Connecticut. And when David Morse, uh, in the, like you said in that opening scene, is is walking through the town. I mm-hmm. had to pause the movie and and check IMDb to see if this was filmed in Ansonia or Shelton or any of the towns uh, near me in the Naruto uh-huh. Valley because it was spot on for the for this area.
0: Even though it ended up being filmed in Virginia.
1: Exactly, yes. This, see, it's, and it's funny too, because generally when you when you talk about Connecticut, you're talking about like the more like Stepford Wives, you know, affluence and, uh, you know, sort of more palatial uh, New England type stuff, right? Okay. But there are these certain areas which were like the factory areas of Connecticut. So you had like mm-hmm. the Naugatuck Valley from like Waterbury on down to Bridgeport where, um... Part of this story took place. Um, mm-hmm. You had uh, Bristol and you know uh, up in Torrington, so it's it's a much more working class area, and a lot of the houses there. Uh, it's a very hilly area too. A lot of lot of hills in Connecticut, which you know for the the farmland stuff. You, that's where you get those beautiful rolling hills with the mm-hmm. foliage and stuff. But when they built all the houses for the Uh, You know, after World War II, for like returning soldiers, and you just got these little tiny postage stamp houses on these hills, just like sandwiched (laughs) all next to each other. Yeah. They nailed that. They nailed that in this movie. I can't believe that this wasn't like five miles from my hometown. So I I thought that was absolutely fantastic.
0: Yeah. I looked that up too because I was like, where was this film? (laughs) When you find out it's not where the story actually takes place. Sometimes you just have to be impressed by how well they did with scouting locations because first I will say... I really love that wraparound porch on that house because it, it just looked like oh, the perfect yeah. place to go sit outside. And, you know, I've never lived in a house that had a porch remotely like that or a porch in general, I guess. It's just, you know, every place <laughs> I've lived, it's yeah. like you you walk up to the door. and That's about it. You get this sense that this house that is now apartments, basically, has this history behind it too and that's really what you think of when you think of places like Connecticut and Maine and basically the whole Mm -hmm. northeast and yes Virginia too but it's not as north or east (laughs) as those but (laughs) you really just got a sense that they picked the right spot for this to take place and they did a nice job even though it was in 2000 I believe when they started filming this you get a sense that this is what the 60s looked like in this area.
1: Mm. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, and that that was, you know, that was this little, like, nostalgia piece. That was probably my favorite aspect yeah. of the movie, you know, in a strange way. It was the location. That doesn't happen very often, but they really nailed it.
0: Yeah, and I think when you have small things like that to just really relish in when you're watching a movie, it does make the experience better. Because like I said, this wasn't the best Stephen King adaptation. It also was far from the worst based on what I've seen so far. So I had (laughs) a good time with it. But is there anything else you want to talk about story-wise before we start wrapping up soon? No, I think that
1: that kind of covers everything. The only other thing in my notes is the music, I, I, I was okay. conflicted on the music, because it's it's like they picked songs that fit, but didn't nail it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like almost like they were the songs were too generic. Like at one point they had the twist, and it's like yeah, you know we've all we've all heard the twist, and and they had um uh, the Santo and Johnny song uh, Sleepwalk, uh you know the little instrumental and like that's kind of been overused you know after La Bamba like don't use that (laughs) (laughs) because it is La Bamba so like I think that was one of the other aspects that I think I was kind of looking in throwback movies like this you sort of look for the, you know, what's on the soundtrack and is it going to, uh, you know, Dirty Dancing would be like the, the prime example of a, a soundtrack from this era that just mm-hmm. nails everything. And it's not all, you know, the hits. Some of them are, you know, second, you know, maybe B-sides and like not, not really the main songs that you would think of from that era, but they work so well in the movie. And these ones were just kind of like, oh, well.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, that's all right.
1: That works, I guess.
0: It's hard because you want familiar songs for your audience, especially if the audience is not from this time period, did not grow up on this music because there are certain songs <laughs> that just stand right. the test of time, you know. People are going to know Beatles songs for probably decades to come. And yeah, you also kind of want some deeper cuts maybe that fit the mood and the tone a little better because if I'm remembering correctly, a lot of the music in this did seem pretty upbeat in comparison to some of the storylines in it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's just one of those things where you might like the songs, but you might just want a better tone for some of them at times, especially when you get these more somber moments because you have these moments where you have – carol getting beat up when the mom returns from her business trip and yes you have the score as well to kind of reflect Mm. that a bit better in my opinion so you don't necessarily need needle drops every time something happens but it is kind of nice to have some that feel like they fit a little better but overall i thought this was pretty good i believe i gave it a 3 out of 5 which you know that's better than a lot of oh, yeah, <laughs> other same. things i've watched recently green mile aside
1: <laughs> i um i always seem to like uh like get critical when i'm you know talking like analyzing um And I'm like, oh, you know, this is wrong and that's wrong and I don't like this. And And I'm like, but (laughs) it was a great movie. I gave it a a four out of five. You know, it's like, what are you talking about?
0: Make up your mind. (laughs) Yeah,
1: It's definitely a good movie and it's a worthwhile watch. I I think if you, I think, you know, part of my problem was I went in, you know, hoping it was going to be Stand By Me. And it's Mm -hmm. definitely not. But how many movies are Stand By Me? Not very many.
0: (laughs) At this point, for me, the top tier adaptations really have been Stand By Me, Shawshank, The Green Mile. And you just get these movies where you get such great performances out of the cast on top of an already great story. And this one, you know, we felt kind of middle Mm -hmm. of the road on the story as well. And then the fact that it doesn't adapt the entire book, you're kind of like, okay, so they condensed it and gave us this kind of sort of coming of age story from the perspective of one boy instead of a group. And you really got a better sense of who all of the characters were in the story versus the movie, which obviously you have the downside of having a runtime for a movie, whereas Stephen King has no page (laughs) limits, as I am very well learning. (laughs) (laughs) Right.
1: Yeah, of course. So yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I totally agree with you. Like I said, I, I, you know, like a three out of five. I might even, you know, I might watch this movie again if it's yeah. ever like on. You know, I'm not gonna maybe run out and uh, buy it or watch it on purpose. But I thought it was, I thought it was really good, and it was nice to see, um, see Anton uh, Yelchin's, You know, this was his his debut performance. Okay. So, and uh, he was he was fantastic in this you know especially you know when you think about child actors that doesn't always work and um and he's also you know he's going toe-to-toe with Anthony Hopkins uh so you know he really he really uh brought it and and held his own so I thought that was uh excellent
0: I almost feel like as a kid, maybe he just didn't have that knowledge of, hey, I'm doing a movie with Anthony Hopkins. He was like, oh, okay, doing a movie, cool. <laughs> let, let's ride some bikes, you know, let, let's read some books.
1: Right, yeah.
0: This old guy, he, he's he got it. <laughs> yeah. He's pretty good. <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah. Yep. So...
0: Awesome. Well, Dan, thank you so much for coming on to talk about the film adaptation of Hearts in Atlantis today. I am very glad that this movie went over better than I expected because I was really worried. You know, it, it seemed like the 90s had <laughs> few and far between adaptations that were actually really good you got a lot of the spectrum in the 90s you were like really great or Ooh, oh no so to kick off the 2000s yeah. with right. a movie that was pretty good is good enough for me yeah
1: oh definitely definitely yeah and you know i i really appreciate you having me back on and like you said i love talking about both the the book and the movie on this so it was uh, excellent great time
0: All right, that does it for this episode of Chat Cemetery. You can support the podcast on Patreon for a dollar a month. You'll get a thank you on the show for $2 a month. I will send you a Chat Cemetery sticker. And if you want to follow us on social media, you can do so at Chat Cemetery on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You could also rate and review the show. That's a huge help. And as always, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day.